This is Geology Bites with Oliver Strumple. With the help of plate tectonics, we have a relatively straightforward picture of how major mountain chains formed. For example, at a very high level, the Himalaya resulted from the collision of two continental plates, India and Eurasia, and the Andes are a volcanic chain that formed where the oceanic Nazca plate subducts beneath the South American plate. But what about the Alps? They are the most intensively studied of all mountain chains, being readily accessed from the geological research centers of Europe. But despite this, there remains considerable uncertainty as to how the Alps were formed. One of the major challenges in alpine research is to understand how rocks deform on various scales, from individual mineral grains up to the scale of mountains. But the picture is complicated by the presence of several sedimentary basins and tectonic fragments along the southern margin of Europe in the Eocene epoch, about 40 million years ago, when the Alps started to form. Rob Butler has devoted much of his research career to the Alps, and particularly to discovering how deformation within alpine rocks has been concentrated over the past 40 million years. It turns out that while recent deformation is clearly visible as folds and faults in the rocks today, it was the structure of the southern margin of Europe before the Alps started to form that played a critical role in the early evolution of the Alps. Rob Butler is Professor of Tectonics at the University of Aberdeen. Rob Butler, welcome to Geology Bites. Thank you, it's great to be here. Since I just mentioned the importance of the situation on the southern margin of Europe before the Alps started to form, let's start with that. What did the geography of the region look like in the Eocene about 40 million years ago? Yeah, it was a great starting point. I mean, first of all, we have to be quite clear what we mean by Europe at that stage. And the Italians won't like this, but we're not going to include them in Europe at this stage. They're going to be part of a small continental block that geologists generally refer to as Adria or Apulia. And that was a distinct fragment of similar continental blocks that decorated or got caught up between the two major continental masses of Africa and Europe. So when we're talking about Europe at that stage, about 40 million years ago, in terms of land masses, the bits I'm interested in are Western Europe. So that's very much southeast France, if you like, running round into Western Switzerland, or at least the northern part of Western Switzerland. So we have that being an area of low-lying ground, some of it above, some of it below sea level, some very simple bits of proto-mountain range beginning to develop in there, nothing very substantial. Either side of that, you've got mountain ranges beginning to develop in the sense of topography and ranges. So in the Eastern Alps running into Austria and so forth, modern-day Austria, and beyond there would be more conventional types of mountain range, perhaps like the modern day Caucasus or somewhere like that. Not a big wide belt, but narrow strips, similarly a sort of proto-Pyrenees between Spain and Iberia and southern France. So we have a complicated surroundings of proto-mountain ranges, but in the Western Alps, we've got essentially a very low-lying area, most of it underwater. So what events set the mountain building process in motion? So probably the preceding 50 plus million years, there's been convergence between Africa and Europe and the bits of these small continental blocks are getting shuffled and pushed together. So there's an area of general convergence and reshaping. 
the geological Europe, not the land that we would call it. So if you were pottering around in the Eocene, you'd see this seaway. But actually, the geology of Europe continued and begun to subduct or get carried beneath this northern margin of Apulia Adria. So that's the preceding part. As with any mountain range, pretty much, there's a period of subduction of the ocean areas and thin bits of continent being taken down into the upper mantle. So that's the preceding game. And you just let the tape run so that the convergence continues and eventually you collide mountains. And that's a Himalayan situation. That's the same in any collision mountain belt. But in the Eocene, we're not quite at that stage yet in the Alps. So 40 million years ago, it's all set to go. So wait a minute. So you have this shallow sea that you talked about, this low-lying area, part above sea level, part below. And that is subducting in which direction? Broadly southwards or south and east underneath this continental fragment that you can think of as Italy, modern-day Italy. Or Adria, as you called it. Quite so. Okay, so that then swallowed up that low-lying area. So during this period, there was no actual topography created. And then it was only when that area got fully consumed that you then started a more conventional mountain-building process. Yeah, so we need to think a little bit about what this area that's already going down the plug hole, if you like, what that actually consists of. And that's thin crust, the old continental margin, people think rather like the modern day Atlantic margin of Iberia or of Western France. So you have a, an area of thin tapering wedge of continental crust sedimentary basins that are being gradually taken down into the system. So you've got thin crust and a big root of mantle underneath it and that's the driver that allows the continental crust, the thin crust, to be taken down and subducted. In contrast, as you go further out into what you might think as stable Europe, the normal Europe, which, if you like, would be the sort of massive central of France in terms of what you see in the outcrop today, that's normal thickness continental crust. And the change will happen when that enters the subduction zone and chokes it so that thicker crust is too buoyant too thick to be carried down by its mantle root into the mantle and it's then that you'll start thickening that up and making mountain ranges okay so now we've wound the clock forward to about 25 million years ago would that be in the early miocene roughly yes end oligocene early miocene is when there's evidence in the geological record for a change in the surrounding basin areas that are going to collect the detritus that erodes off the proto-alpine chain. So as you begin to the mountains, they poke up in the air, they erode, and the signal of that is detritus being washed into the surrounding areas. And that really gets going into the early Miocene. Virtually nothing before that. Is the initiation of the topography in this region still driven by what's happening with the subduction zone and how it gets clogged up with this thick crust? Or are we talking about the more regional convergence of Africa up north towards Europe? Well, it's both really, because that convergence happens because you're able to have the subduction going on. And the likelihood is that the motor for the convergence as it continues is the pull of that subducted slab of mantle lithosphere that lay under the rifted margin and beyond so that that's an extra pull that pulls the material in together so that so-called slab pull process which is one of the main drivers of plate tectonics anyway it's much easier to think of processes 
in terms of slab pull, rather than, if you like, a car crash of continents. Okay, so you have this slab pull operating, which consumes these low-lying areas, and then you say get choked up by the Massif Central-type thick crust. Yes. So what happens next? That thick crust is not completely thick. It actually consists of slightly weaker rifted basins, perhaps like the margins of intercontinental rifts like the North Sea, for example. So it's got some scope to deform and squash and to thicken up a process we call inversion tectonics because what was basins have now become mountains and in bygone days people really didn't recognize the presence of these old basin sections in the alps and the reason we now know this is because of a lot of detailed work done by alpine stratigraphers and paleontologists actually not by structural geologists who recognized earlier rift basins the sort of things we now know exist because of seismic and so forth places like the north sea And we recognise those in the stratigraphy now squashed up in the car crash of the Alps. So you thicken the crust by squashing together those old basins. Okay, I'm still a little confused about the mechanism by which the basins get squashed together and form the topography if the subduction process has essentially ground to a halt. The subduction is continuing in terms of what's happening for the upper mantle, rather like pulling a rug. And the material on the rug, which is the crust, gets rammed together. So if you could imagine having a a rug on the floor and you're pulling, let's imagine you pull a rug under a bed. The furniture that's on that rug gets bashed into the bed frame. That's the continental crust being bashed together. But the pull, the rug, the slab pull, continues until of course the amount of furniture has rammed up against the bed and you can't pull the rug anymore and that's essentially what's happening in a collision process that the crust that's coming in clogs the system up but the process continues to the extent that it then creates topography and the squashing as you refer to it yeah because the crust is thick it doesn't take much extra squash to generate mountain ranges the interesting feature of the thin crust that preceded it in the system is that it looks like that can be just carried down into the mantle and doesn't really do much topographically it doesn't thicken much it just gets entrained in and we see that recorded by high pressure metamorphism in it the record mineralogically of the material being taken down to great depth and changing character mineralogy it then returns in that subduction zone by its residual buoyancy and it sort of squirts back up rather like toothpaste, if you like, being squirted out of the toothpaste tube. But that's a subduction process and isn't doing very much to generate topography. It's certainly making some neat structures in the rocks, but isn't really manifest in landscape processes. Mm -hmm. So let's wind the clock forward a bit. Well, that process, we can date it radiometrically from cooling ages and crystallisation of minerals. So that return flow, most of it seems to have happened by about 30-ish million years, so towards the end of the Oligocene. And that represents the change when that thicker continental crust is arriving on the scene. So you get this return flow, you pack stuff up in the upper crust as it crushes in, and at the same time, the thick continental crust arrives and begins to thicken up as well. And that process is clogging the whole system up. Continental crust is having a hard time getting down the subduction zone now. You've got too much of it, it's too buoyant. And so that thickens, and now you start creating a range, topographic mountain range. So you elevate the rocks that have come up this channel. You start seeing metamorphic rocks at the surface. They generate 
detritus that appears in the surrounding sedimentary records. And so you can chart not only that, but also the bits of detritus coming off the thickening continental crust as well. And you see them all coming out together into the surrounding areas. And where do we see that detritus today? One of the really great records of it, actually, is in a package of rocks called the Manos Aranacha, which is a Miocene succession in northern Italy, as you could probably guess from the name, notwithstanding my bad pronunciation. And it's caught up in what is now the northern Apennines. And that package is a sequence of so-called turbidites, which are relatively deep water rocks. That area was low-lying and is essentially submarine fans building out into what is to become northern Italy. That's the smoking gun for these processes. Is that part of the Po Basin today? It went underneath the Po Basin. The Po Basin is yet younger still detritus that's come off the Alps and northern Apennines and is still accumulating today. I said earlier that the pre-existing structure along the southern margin of Europe played a critical role in the early evolution. Are you referring there to the transition from the thin crust to the thick crust, or is there more fine-grained detail that we see reflected in the deformation of the Alps today that is a testament to that situation 40 million years ago? You're right, first time. The general distribution of crustal thickness is fundamentally related to a rifting process in the Mesozoic, which was forming Tethys, the precursor ocean to the Alps and other chains. But in detail, you can see that quite a lot of the contractional structures, the folds and so forth, you see it certainly in parts of the Alps, like the Ekram National Park area to the east of the city of Grenoble. The folds there, a lot of the folds there, you can relate to rocks being squashed up against fault blocks, pre-Jurassic age fault blocks. So the structures you see when you wander around in the Alps, many of them have their spatial distribution controlled by these pre-existing basin structures. And the areas that didn't have very many pre-existing normal faults have a much simpler stratigraphy, much more like a continuous layer cake. And those areas permitted thrust slip to go out, rather like having a tablecloth moving out across a tabletop. If that table is broken up and has lots of different steps on it, that's much harder, of course. So the areas that have those big so-called decolmont or unsticking tectonics are places where there were very weak developments of these pre-existing rift basins. And what regions would those correspond to today? The classic example are the Jura Hills in northern Switzerland running round to that corner of France that's the continuation, so outboard from Geneva, if you like, going right round towards outboard of Zurich. So that's the classic example. But you can see hints of it elsewhere in the geology of the Alps, where strata that deposited at a large scale across the top of blocks have been peeled off and carried out as thrushes. The term that people use all the time to describe these sheets are naps. That's what you're referring to, is it? Yeah, nappy sheet. So that's basically a tablecloth slipping around the place. Now, of course, if you squash any rocks enough, they can sort of squirt out. So that's not the exclusive reason why you get thrust sheets. Some of the sedimentary basins, when they're squashed a lot, essentially you're squirting the contents like a jam sandwich, you sort of squirt the contents out. And those can become far travel thrust sheets as well. A slightly inelegant sort. Let's talk a bit about the different deformation styles then. So you already mentioned how the, the Jura are this tablecloth, or I don't know if, if there's a more technical term for it, tectonics. Could you just describe the different parts of the Alps a little bit in terms of how they've deformed and how that manifests in what we see there today? Yes, 
Decolmore tectonics would be the fancy way you'd say for tablecloth tectonics, ungluing detachment tectonics. And that means, just like a tablecloth, if you make that slip surface slightly sticky, it can ruck up and make folds. And the folds have a very simple type of form, kilometre-wide structures. They make the hills of quite a lot of the Jura. The landscape actually mimics the bedrock geology. As you go deeper into the Alps, those rocks have had material taken off the top. They were hotter, therefore, when they deformed. They were once deeper underground. And in those situations, you get different types of folds, shorter wavelength, much shorter wavelength folds. I've already touched on the idea that if they're pre-existing normal faults, that the sedimentary strata in the little basins get squashed up against normal faults, and that will generate much shorter wavelength upright folds, much more intense folding than you see in the Decormore systems of the Jura. So there's a fold scale and fold shape variation that relates to these different settings, in part related to where they lay on the old rifted continental margin, whether there were normal faults or not, and in part where they lay in the crust or in the roots of the mountain range, what level they lay, which controls some of the ductility of the rocks when they were deforming. So these dual controls, it is quite difficult to tease these out, actually. What are the relative importance of, of each? Part of the issue is that structural geologists traditionally have only been really that bothered about the structure. And they haven't thought very much about the basins, the pre-existing basin stratigraphy. These days, of course, they do. But you go back 50 years when a lot of the ideas of folds relating to ductility were developed. The idea there were rift basins in the Alps was barely thought about. Is that partly because the structural features are so much easier to see? I mean, even the untrained eye, like mine, you can see the Glarus thrust, for example, it's just a great big line across the mountain. Is that because there's a sort of selection effect based upon what it's easy to see when you go hiking in the mountains? I'm sure that's true. And there's a tendency also for people to work on things that they can recognise, things you can't necessarily make your mind up about straight away. I think there's a tendency for all of us to, to put to one side. And often the stratigraphic relationships make for slightly more complicated structures because the layering wasn't nice and continuous to start with. So people have tended to overlook them. Nowadays, people are going after them all over the place because those are the key. And it's an interesting challenge in an investigation of any region. Something we have in the earth sciences, of course, is that the, the world is our oyster, but it's a big world <laughs> and a lot of oysters. And so the question is, which bits do you concentrate on, which do you think are important? For me, I think the important stuff is always the stuff you can't understand. It's the stuff that doesn't leap out at you, because that's almost certainly where you're going to find the solution. The things that are most obvious are usually not the most important. And in this case, the less obvious stuff is the pre-existing stratigraphy. It's the areas where there's pre-existing stratigraphic variation. Those in rift systems, those will happen most dramatically from one side of a normal fault to another, from a fault block to a basin. So you want to find those. It's a holistic approach. You want to try and put that stratigraphy together at the same time as you are trying to unravel the structure. One of the ways in which people try to disentangle the various contributions to this accommodation, if you like, of the one continent moving next to another one is really the overall amount of crustal shortening that's taken place. And at least in the case of Himalayas, there's often a debate about to what extent that's accommodated by huge boundary faults or by integral shortening through folds and maybe smaller faults on many different scales. 
Is that a similar debate in the Alps with respect to the fact that these early major faults were detected first and now we're finding out much more about the finer scale structure? Understanding distributed deformation, an individual hand block won't have that much convergence between Italy and France recorded in it. But you put a lot of blocks together, that's a lot of convergence. And the catch is to capture that as an insight is quite difficult. You can't take a photograph of it. You can take a photograph of a little bit of it, but you can't capture the essence in the same way as you can by taking a photograph of the Glarus thrust. So I think in structural geology, I think this goes for many other scale-dependent parts of the science, there's a tendency to deal with the things that you can capture in a photograph or capture with a view, not necessarily capture the distributed nature of deformation. That's point one. However, the question really is whether you can evaluate the amount of shortening in mountain belts to actually get the convergence. It's something I tried a long time ago. In fact, my first postdoc was to try and do exactly that in the Alps. And I came up with a number of hundreds of kilometres of shortening, because if you unravel all these structures, that's the sort of number you get. The people have had similar numbers for centuries. But how much of that is because of the return flow in our subduction channel? So you essentially are double accounting. You've got the material that's gone down our subduction zone, so that's recording true plate convergence. But if you also add in the return flow coming back up, you're counting it twice because it's come back up. So I think there's been an awful lot of double accounting going on. And the challenge is to recognise it because there's obviously real convergence as well. So separating those two components, well, I don't think you can. And maybe try and find other explanations or other tools to establish the far field tectonic convergence in the system. What kind of tools might those be? For example, the Himalayan collision with Tibet and the rest of Asia, we understand how that works because we can reconstruct the plate motion on a global scale and reconstruct India's relative motion through the opening of the Indian Ocean Basin, for example, and tie it into a whole Earth plate tectonic model. And we can do a similar thing between the whole of Africa and, if you like, stable Europe. But what you can't do is then define the movements of the individual little blocks caught up in the car crash between, which is the Alps, the other Mediterranean chains. You need to sort all those out. And that's tough. Any more than it would be to, you know, if you have a car crash and to work out where a particular piece has come out of the car and where it's gone to. You couldn't forecast where that wing mirror went when you had a car crash. Not easily. So that's the challenge we have, is having a, a marker we can work at at a scale that's appropriate to the scale of Alpine system. So then what you're suggesting is that there were many more fragments that came into play in determining what happened in this crash than there were in, for example, the Himalayan case. Let's take that in two parts. Certainly, in an alpine Mediterranean context, there's great debate about what the distribution of the various pieces of older continental fragments, by older I mean pre-Tethys, so that's Triassic and older fragments, what their distribution was. You can identify where they are. There's a huge controversy about where, for example, Calabria, the, the foot of Italy, exactly sat nowhere near where it is now similarly other fragments that make up the italian peninsula where do those sit let alone the southern margin of the alps going into northern italy where precisely was that precisely in this case is plus or minus 100 kilometers well 100 kilometers is quite a lot of shortening in an alpine context so that uncertainty of where you're going to put it feeds into the far field determinations of strain in the mountain belt 
And the prize is in that value. Not, it's, it's all about the tens of kilometres, not the hundreds of kilometres when it comes to understanding the structure at the scale of those mountain ranges. Now, the question is, how much of that is also true of the Himalayas? We just don't know it yet. People talk about the presence of volcanic arcs that were between India and Eurasia and whether those collided with Eurasia first or collided with India first. But we're not really talking about volcanic arcs here. We're just talking about where all these little terrains came to be after the previous phase of rifting. That's right. But the question is then, what do you mean by terrain? So you could think of an individual fault block, which has had a bit of stretch away from another bit of fault block on a rifted margin as being a microcontinental block. It was all joined together by bits of continent. But understanding where all those fragments exactly sit is the prize. And so you need to be able to unravel that. So, it, OK, in a Himalayan case, what did that rifted margin look like that's been caught up? The amount of geological investigation of that problem in the Himalayas is minuscule compared to the understanding of what's been built in the Alps, where there's been two centuries of stratigraphic studies rather than a handful of expeditions into rather remote parts of the northern Himalayas. Coming back to the Alps then, what are the most pressing research themes that people are engaged in today? There's a lot of effort trying to add geochronological precision to the timing of things, trying to get better estimates of the conditions in the subduction zone, partly because subduction zones are continuing to be a major topic in earth science research, understanding how continental fragments get entrained into subduction zones is a global issue and the Alps is a place that you can try and look at that. Part of the challenge though is that many of these works rely on quite historical reconstructions of the large-scale structure. So the question is, it's all very well having a very precise number on a deformation, but if you're imprecise about where it is in space, it doesn't necessarily help you that there remains this problem of how you deal with the diversity of data you need to solve these sorts of problems. And we've alluded to the idea that one of the Alps' great assets is the sheer amount of data. How do you handle it? Most of it's not real data. Most of it's first order interpretation derived from observations and caught up by all those issues we've been touching on, such as selection bias. <laughs> and so how do you see through all that? It's a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge I have in trying to teach alpine geology. How do you really get into what is knowledge? What is inference? What is known? What is unknown? What do we think we know, but actually we just assume? And I think there's a real challenge with knowing too much or not being able to filter. Are the Alps still growing today? Going up, yes. They are. They're also wearing away and sending detritus down the River Po whenever it rains, which this year it did a lot. So there's still Africa convergence going on that is that is squeezing the crust a little bit, although hardly at all. And most of those earthquakes are not in the Alps. They're in places like Sicily and elsewhere in the Mediterranean area. But there's still a weak convergence going on. There's still earthquakes because of rebound rebounding crust is coming up and that's not a steady process it's creaky so you get earthquakes you get mountains that are growing we know that not only because of geological research it's also had a lot of topographic surveys for centuries but also over the last 30 years from gps records but you can also see the uplift in some of the long railway tunnels in switzerland which started off horizontal and now bowed <laughs> so that there's relatively short kilometers wavelength differential uplift happening across the alps as well
and that uplift has a tectonic origin? The principal driver is actually erosion. So that as you erode material and take it away from the Alps, you're taking a load off the Alps, which means the bits that haven't eroded, which are the mountain peaks rather than the mountain valleys, rise. So it's an isostatic response to erosion. That's fascinating. So actually, by wearing down the mountains, we're just really creating more relief. We're not actually wearing down the peaks. Yeah, we're not wearing down the mountains. We're eroding the valleys, the valley sides, particularly in a glaciated time. Then you're wearing out the bottoms and the sides of the valleys and the spiky bits go higher. Obviously, they fall down catastrophically every now and then. But actually, overall, you generate exactly more relief. But that's really because overall, the Alps are still fairly young. I mean, eventually, they'll be flattened like the Urals or something, won't they? Presumably. Once you've taken all the load off your ship, it just goes back to where it was. So, yeah. Are you currently engaged yourself in any Alpine research? One of the things I've been playing with is trying to use the sedimentary rocks and the strata that are deposited around the time, particularly of the Eocene, Oligocene, to reconstruct relief. But it's submarine relief because these were submarine deposits, the turbidites, and they were fed into kilometre-deep seaways that surrounded the Alps, the things I mentioned before. The earliest ones weren't derived from the Alpine chain because the Alps wasn't generating topography. They were derived from other places and came into this seaway. And so if you can reuse this record, you can potentially get a very detailed and quite subtle story of how bathymetry, submarine topography, varied around the edge of the Alps. I think it will provide information about the slab processes the subduction zone processes that were just coming to an end at this sort of time. And it will tell us potentially how those slabs coupled with the adjacent, not so rifted margin of Europe. I'm a believer in serendipity and the importance of doing curiosity research. I don't know if it will have any tectonic value at all, but if you don't do it, you'll never find out. Whereabouts are you actually looking at these sedimentary structures? I'm looking at it in a system that's generally known as the Great Danot, which is quite a famous set of turbidites in southeast France, and you can find its continuation around that rim through the Dauphiné and maybe even up to that corner of western Switzerland, right around the Western Alpine Arc. It's a nice place to go as well, so it's always good to have a hobby that provides good wine. Rob Butler, thank you very much. Thank you, it's been fun. To see pictures and illustrations that support this podcast, go to geologybytes.com where you'll also find transcripts and a subject matter index of all the episodes. There you can also give me feedback, which I welcome, as well as sign up to get my emails about new episodes.